There was a Jewish leader named Nicodemus who belonged to the party of the Pharisees. One night, he went to Jesus. Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher sent by God. No one could perform the miracles you are doing unless God were with him. I am telling you the truth. No one can see the kingdom of God without being born again. How can a grown man be born again? He certainly cannot enter his mother's womb and be born a second time. I am telling you the truth. No one can enter the kingdom of God without being born of water and the spirit. A person is born physically of human parents, but is born spiritually of the spirit. Yes, indeed. This is a bit of a summer rerun from last week, you may have noticed, because we will build this week upon what we learned last week regarding Jesus' teaching about this very necessary second birth, if anyone is to see the kingdom of God. So, a couple of brief reminders. This new birth, God conceiving new life in anyone, is step one in the process of salvation. And the fact that it is a process helps us make sense of many of our experiences, we said last week, of salvation, of encountering Jesus. It's often not just one moment we remember, but a series of moments of seeing somebody else's changed life, of being confronted with the gospel about Jesus, uh, with questions that you have and grappling with those in these, these moments before you actually sort of cry out, Jesus, you win. We also learned that this process of spiritual birth parallels physical birth. They mirror one another, if you will. So Jesus is is saying, if you get the gist of physical birth, if you understand the basics of that, then you can kind of grasp spiritual birth. So we had a uh, seven-year-old last week uh, step up, step up to the plate and talk about his mom's pregnancy with his little brother to show how easy it is to to grasp this. Spiritual birth parallels physical birth. And I, and I interviewed him, and, I, and he said, you know, it's, it's, it is kind of a mystery when his brother popped up in his mom's tummy. No one knows. He certainly didn't when she was conceived. But he could tell his little brother was there when his mommy's tummy got bigger. He could tell new life was in his mommy's tummy when it grew. And then, of course, he was delivered, and he met his little brother. I asked, how did his brother grow? He said two ways. First, through milk. And then now through solid foods. And right there, you have the basics of what Jesus is trying to say. In the same way, a person is born again. It is conceived, grows, is delivered, and then grows outside of the womb. And on that note, I share with you what we call the birth line. And I asked you to draw it and share it with at least one person in the church. We said, let's start slow. Share it with maybe your spouse, someone you came with, or a friend you came with, or someone you know in the church. And just... Mark a little X where you find yourself on the birth line. Just a quick review, moving from left to right, we have conception, pregnancy, delivery, growth. And in the spiritual life, the same way. New life, calling, when God begins to call you, when someone tells you about Jesus and you're grappling with questions and you're trying to figure out, is this for me? And you're counting the cost, do I really want to follow Jesus? And finally you say yes, God, Lord willing, and that's conversion. You express faith and you grow through milk and solid food, through the basics about Jesus and then learning more about him 
and experiencing more of Him through the Holy Spirit. Over the past month, I've shared that I had drawn this out for over a dozen persons, both Christians and skeptics, the mature and the unsure, all different sorts of people. I explained it briefly, then I asked the person to put the X on that line just to share where they think they are in relationship to God. Unlike when I've shared with people like the bridge illustration, here's God, here's man, the big gulf of sin in the middle, and the cross that gets you over there. Usually that's a monologue, as is sometimes sharing my story or my testimony. Unlike those things, doing the birth line with someone, just drawing it on a napkin helps immediately get them into the conversation, to get them engaged. So it's more of a spiritual dialogue without it slipping into a monologue, just me talking like I am now. The result has been, I'm telling you guys, just with about a dozen or more people, minimum 15-minute conversation, hearing from a person where they are in relationship to God, in their opinion. But usually about an hour, hour 15, hour and a half conversation. Has anyone actually tried it out this week? Anyone try out? I'm not looking for a pharisaical answer, but I hope some of you tried it out this week. And I'm going to actually allow right now a moment for a brief, just sort of one-minute testimony on how God used it. So if anyone this week used it with their spouse, used it with a friend, someone in the church, or had it used on them and it really helped them, does anyone feel led to share how it helped them? It's okay if not? Okay, there's my, okay. Okay, well that, that, I want to always be giving us opportunities to share how we're putting these things into practice. What I said is that having a faith dialogue about new birth, using this birth line is a great place to start. It's a lot like an old school GPS, right? Where we still want to have turn-by-turn navigation. So this old school GPS just showed us where we were and where we needed to go. And I, and I shared about how Katie and I went to visit Costa Rica once. I took a hasty left turn, had to go over some hobbit-built bridge. Right? I didn't know where we were, but thankfully Google GPS, without data, came to the rescue And similarly, Jesus is saying here, here's where you are, Nicodemus. And here's where you need to go. What's still missing is the turn-by-turn navigation. And similarly, what I want to help us do this morning is move from dialogue to direction. From, From giving someone a map of where they stand with God, maybe, and where you personally stand with God, to turn-by-turn navigation. From discerning where a person is in relationship to Jesus to seizing the opportunity to direct someone to how they can know King Jesus. Because as you do this with someone, and I want to keep challenging you to do that, keep challenging you to have that dialogue with somebody, eventually, if God's at work in them, they're going to ask, well, how do I actually get to know Jesus? How can I actually trust him? What did he do that makes him worth worshiping and loving forever? So turn with me, if you would, to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, starting in verse 17. 1 Corinthians 1, 17, we're going to read through chapter 2, verse 5. That's going to be on page 815 if you want to use a Bible we've provided in these chair pockets within your aisles. 1 Corinthians 1, verse 17. After Jesus paved the way to the kingdom, through the life he lived, through the death he died, through his rising from death and ascending into heaven, no one gave turn-by-turn directions to the kingdom of God, quite like the Apostle Paul. And he gives us some good stuff here in terms of what our role is in this new birth. Let's read together. 1 Corinthians 
chapter 2, verse 5. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, this would be in the Old Testament, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discerning of the dis- discernment of the discerning I will thwart. So where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God, through wisdom it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs, Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews, folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many of you powerful. Not many of you were noble by birth. But God chose what's foolish in the world to shame the wise. He chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. He chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. He is the source of your life in Christ Jesus, whom God has made our wisdom our righteousness, our sanctification, and our redemption. Therefore it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. And I, when I came to you, brothers, I didn't come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. My speech and my message weren't in plausible words of wisdom, but a demonstration of the Spirit and of power, that your faith may not rest in the wisdom of men, but the power of God. This is God's Word. Ryan, Patrick's not coming back to university. I spent two years trying to lead him to Christ, and now he's leaving. In fact, he's already headed back to Texas. I won't see him again. I just know I could have done more. What's so admirable about my friend saying this is he cared enough about a person's soul to tell him the truth. What was admirable is that he recognized that part of the job description God gives a lost person who is now found is telling other lost people how they can be found. He took it seriously. And so when his friend left, feeling like he would never see him again, it cut him deep for some time, filled him with regret. He had shared his story with his Texan friend. He addressed his questions. He shared with him the relevance of Jesus and the cross to his life. He even brought him along to church. His friend at times seemed interested. Even, even convinced. But the problem was his friend was also very easily swayed. When you hear about a new trend, a new view of the world, or even just watched his friends enjoy life through self-gratification, he would stray. And so my friend watched him go, thinking, I could have done more. Do you sometimes feel that way? Maybe, maybe you feel that way now about someone you know or someone you love, someone you care for in your life. 
a neighbor, friend, coworker, family member maybe. A proper understanding of God's role in new birth and our role in new birth can help provide us rest with confidence. That we don't have to be filled with regrets, but neither do we have to abandon all care and just say, ah, God will do it. I don't need to worry. Well, let's first discuss the friend, the family, the neighbor, the coworker. Your longing for and your praying comes to trust Jesus Christ. Like my friend's university mate, and like the Corinthians, we live amongst people too easily swayed. Have I ever told you guys about the time I got to be the center of a sociological experiment? Have I ever told you this? Anyone, you can shake your head if yes. I forget how many times I tell people stories, but I don't think I've told this one. Uh, I had a researcher uh, who taught, my, my, a good friend of mine named Jonathan, and he asked 100 volunteers mostly professors and students, to take their seats in a room, apparently to fill out the survey. But that was only a distraction from the real purpose of the experiment, which had to do with how easily all people are swayed by those around us. So there was this large glass jar of cookies prominently displayed at a seat up front in the room, right on the desk. And first of all, you know I love my cookies. Those of you who know me know I love cookies. And who doesn't, really? So all the, the, the researchers, research aides, first asked everyone in the room, you know, would you like a cookie? Well, less than a fifth of the volunteers took him up on his offer, which was surprising since most of these were university students, right? Primarily fed on ramen noodles and that kind of diet. I'm sure they would generally long for cookies. I don't know if most of them were gluten-free or what. In the second stage of the experiment, the research team secretly removed half the cookies from the jar, so it looked like people had, during the break, taken cookies. Now about half the people in the room. So again, another research aide asked volunteers if they wanted a cookie or not. Just time, just over a fifth said they did. So still no results. The final time before the researcher could ask volunteers if they wanted a cookie or not, a random person, played by yours truly, got, they must have known my acting career as a teenager. I had a very, I played Peter, you know, Peter Pan and a Scrooge. And Christmas Carol was a, was a long, illustrious career on stage. <laughs> but I, I walked in the room, re- took the glass jar, opened the lid, took out a cookie in front of everyone in the room, and just walked out eating it. And this time, when the survey taker, taker, takers asked the people in the room if they wanted a cookie, nearly every single person in the room said they wanted one. Every person. The point was that human beings desire what they see other human beings desiring. And the more visible the desire, the more easily swayed we are to want what that person is enjoying. Consider how much more visual, desirable lifestyles are now compared to that was probably 15 years ago almost. With Facebook and Instagram and people constantly shooting pictures of their food and what they're doing and smiling while doing it. And we think to ourselves, I must have that. I must enjoy what they're enjoying. I must Get what they have. I want to do what they are doing. The reality is we are easily swayed. And frankly, if I was in that room and I wasn't playing the actor, I too would have wanted a cookie. So I am one of those easily swayed. Paul's Corinthian audience was swayed so easily. From one moment, thinking the body, the physical body was so unimportant that it was generally okay for a young man to sleep with his father's wife. Two... The other extreme, that the physical body is so holy 
that even a married man and a married woman probably shouldn't engage in anything, just to be safe. So we had these two extremes, right? They were very easily swayed by people in the church who were saying different things at different times, and they would just believe it. Because the Roman world was a brave new world, where really smart people were expressing new ideas constantly, and people had the wealth and thus the time to listen. And they did. They sat around and they listened to all these new ideas that people had about life and the world. And they changed their minds frequently. Here's a map of ancient Corinth. Corinthians is the letter we're reading from the Apostle Paul. This is the city he was writing to, Corinth. There's only one road into town, the Lechion Way. So any out-of-towner or suburb dweller would funnel in to the city, into the hottest spot in all of Corinth, the Agora, or the marketplace. This was by design, because instead of strolling by stores, by, you know, the Gap or Bed Bath Beyond, to music overhead by Nora Jones or Jack Johnson, like, instead of that, you stop, stare, listen to rhetoricians, orators, people who were smart, could speak well, and could persuade. And that's what you did in your local mall. Among such corridors, many of the Corinthians, though, would hear Paul. It says this in Acts 18. Many of the Corinthians hearing Paul believed and were baptized. But even as they were so, many of these Christians, as they started to live life, heard the whispers. Wait until one more persuasive speech, one more convincing fact comes along, and they'll, they'll change their minds. The wise man who points out some new reality, the well-read scholar who can caution the masses. Oh, we've seen this religious fervor before. People get all spiritual and all excited. It'll pass. You have the debater of this age, the kind of person who could poke holes into any argument, any religion or life philosophy. All these people influencing the Corinthian church and saying, ah, you guys will get over this. There are problems with your religion. There's problems with this philosophy. This won't really work. To which Paul responds, this isn't some trendy soundbite, new self-help method, or latest greatest discovery. After all, he says, where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Where are they? They're not to be found. They're not following along this latest trend, even though they're trend followers and setters. Your faith isn't dependent on a smarter person persuading you to a better take on life. In fact, it's not dependent, your faith is, on you at all. A person's faith lasts because of God. Specifically, God's effective choice to conceive new life in someone. His choice to say, I want to birth new life in this person, even though they don't deserve it. That's what your faith is dependent on. Which is God's role in this new birth. To effectively choose to conceive new life in somebody. Where do we get this? Well, let's look right in the middle of our passage. We can't look at this whole passage in detail today. There's lots of confusing stuff in it, isn't it? Let's just look at a few choice pieces and the main points. Right in the middle of our passage. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose, you see that? What is weak to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world even the things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are, so no human being might boast in the presence of God. He chose, he chose, he chose. He uses, chooses people 
As it says here, often the most unlikely people. And he conceives in them new life. Read the next line with me. He is the source of your life in Christ Jesus. So he not only chooses people, he chooses them to bring life in them, to birth life in them. He and he alone does it. He is the source. And that choice is always effective. It can't be doubted, reasoned, or debated away. Four times Paul uses the word power here, which in Greek is the root word for dynamite. It is so powerful, it will have an effect. Most notably, look at verses 4 and 5 with me. My speech and my message were not implausible words of wisdom, but a demonstration of the Spirit and of power. And your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. It is effective, powerful, God's choice. Rather than being unable to answer every objection and incapable of saying that perfect zinger at the right time, at the right moment, that really capture your friend, and that causing regret and thinking later, ah, oh, I should have said this, I should have said that, I could have been better at being a good friend of that person, it actually liberates Paul to the point where he can admit, actually, I'm, I was kind of scared. I didn't have my best stuff, and I'm so glad I didn't. So that your genuine faith may never be dependent on someone's wisdom or being swayed to the next best thing. It's totally dependent on the power of God, and he can be trusted. Paul shares the good news about Jesus. He evangelizes on the basis that God has chosen to effectively put new life and some people with whom he's speaking. In fact, that's what kept him in Corinth, sharing about Jesus for so long. So he knew this church. He wasn't just writing them as like a guest writer. He had spent a year and a half with this church, a year and a half in Corinth, sharing with many different people, trying to give them the good news about Jesus. What kept him there for a year and a half? Let me share this with you from the book of Acts, chapter 18, 8 through 11. We're going to be going through Acts here in a couple weeks. I'm very excited about this. But first... A little snippet. Acts 18, 8 through 11. Many of the Corinthians hearing Paul believed and were baptized. We read that already, right? And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent, for I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people. Let me read that again. I have many in this city who are my people. And he stayed a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. No one has ever come to Corinth to talk about Jesus before Paul came. So how could Jesus, the Lord, say to Paul, I have many in this city who are my people. How could he say that? Because without Paul's help, God has already effectively conceived new life in many people there. God said, I already have people in this city who are my people. You just got to preach to them. I've already birthed new life in people, ripe to be sons and daughters of the living God. You just got to talk to them. Paul just had to carry out his much smaller role. You see that? Let's talk about my role then. What is our role? In our passage, you might notice that Paul talks about himself very little. But when he does, if you notice this, I, me, we is always connected with speaking out loud about Jesus and him crucified. In fact, I posted, I don't know how well you'll be able to see this, my original study map of this passage. But you'll notice up here, every time there's a we, an I, or an us, I have circled it in black permanent marker. 
And I've drawn an arrow to what Paul's role was, what his action was. And if you look at that in your Bible, see in verse 17, me preach. Verse 21, we preach. Verse 23, we preach. Verse 1, I proclaim. Verse 2, I knew nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. In other words, every time Paul mentioned himself, he knew very clearly what his role was in bringing about new life. It was small but important as it is for us. What's our role in new birth? How might we participate with God in bringing someone from death to life? Here here it is in a nutshell this morning. If you remember nothing else, remember this. Give directions to the cross and let God do the rest. That's it. Our job is just to point people to the cross and let Jesus do the rest. Just a year after the film National Lampoon's Vacation, anybody remember that one? came out in 1983. My father decided he was close enough in likeness to Chevy Chase. He thought we could take a shot at a family road trip going across the United States and even bought a new vehicle for it uh, in Antarctic blue um, instead of metallic P, if you're familiar with the movie. Um, And we went across the country. He had a map. We kind of generally knew where we were. We knew where we were going, but that map did not include everything. And so there were frequent stops to the one place you get direction when you're on a lonely interstate in the middle of nowhere, and that is at a gas station. Right? We stopped for gas. My dad usually went inside, and he quietly asked for directions from the gas station. to quietly because he's a man. It's standard fare for males. So similarly, guys, our role is those freely given new life. It's like the gas station attendant. To simply point people in the right direction. The direction of Jesus Christ crucified. You can't force a person to follow your directions. You can't hop in the car with them. That would be creepy. You can't jump in there and get into their spiritual journey and be a backseat driver, right, for all the choices they're making that are right and wrong. What you can do is love them enough, invest them enough to point them in the direction of Jesus Christ crucified. You can, here's another way to express this nutshell, which I like better. Katie didn't like it as much. Give directions to the cross and let Jesus take the wheel. All right, I had to use that. We're going with the car analogy. Give directions to the cross and let Jesus take the wheel. That's right, Carrie Underwood, special right there. <laughs> no, no shortcut. There is no shortcut, guys, to knowing Jesus Christ crucified. Be familiar with the cross so much in your life that you know how to point others to it. It takes a personal familiarity with the subject matter. And so on that note, let me recommend to you a small resource. It's called 50 Reasons Jesus Came to Die by an author I really like named John Piper, author and pastor. Uh, it reads like a daily devotional, obviously 50, 50 days, but it helps a person really become intimately familiar with the implications of the cross, and what the cross does for us even who believe. You might learn some new things, but you'll re-familiarize yourself with the depth of what Jesus has done for us. It's $6 on Kindle if you want to buy it. You can also, I'll just give you this copy afterwards if you're interested and get more familiar with Jesus Christ crucified. But lest I end there, because I always dislike when pastors like ended on their high moment with recommending a book. Because it always felt like, look, you had 30 minutes to share with me information. You could have recommended that book at the beginning. We have information here from Paul. So let's spend our remaining time to look how Paul gives directions to the cross. Look at verse 30. Jesus Christ crucified is our wisdom. 
So as you're sharing with someone, you're giving the directions to the cross, you can share with them that Christ crucified is, is the ultimate wisdom. Consider your, the sufferings that your friend, neighbor, coworker has gone through and the problem that they have with suffering in this world. We have a God who doesn't just talk to the problem of suffering. He lived it. He is the God of suffering. He's the only God among the pantheons of gods in this world who came to this earth, suffered, and died. The worst imaginable death possible. And a spiritual death from the just wrath of God that we can't even imagine. So if anyone understands, it is Jesus Christ and the plan of the cross. Jesus Christ crucified is our righteousness. Jesus spoke rightly. He lived rightly on this earth without any fault or blemish. And so he's the only one fit to be a substitute for rebels like us who can raise his hand before a holy God and say, God, I will take the place of this person I love so much. I I will take their place. I will take their sentence so that they can have my rightness with you. They can have my righteousness. And so Jesus makes that substitute. Jesus Christ crucified is our sanctification, which is just a fancy way of saying he's the one who makes us more like Jesus. We transform into the likeness of Jesus. We become better people, if you want to put it that way, to someone who doesn't yet know Jesus. We become better people, not through harder work, more self-discipline, or more effort, but actually through just knowing Christ crucified. Through just going back and returning to the cross. You think it would be like every other religion. You work harder. You become more dedicated. You graduate to levels in the church. Maybe you become a deacon or an elder, and that makes you more close to God. That's not it at all. Actually, the beauty of knowing Jesus is the more you mess up, you get to go back to the cross and be forgiven again. And that's what helps you love more. It's a paradox. The more you recognize your sin and your faults and your weaknesses, the more you get to go to the cross and change into loving, more godly people. And finally, Jesus Christ crucified is our redemption. He promises to redeem not only this body that you have, but also the very earth on which you enjoy life. The promise of Jesus Christ crucified isn't that we become aliens and fly one day to somewhere foreign. A lot of people believe that. The promise of Jesus Christ crucified is that every beauty, taste, touch, smell, sight you enjoyed here on earth will be perfected when heaven comes down to earth one day, when the new Jerusalem comes down. Because God has said, I love you, and I love this earth, and I want to perfect and redeem all of it. And that's what will happen for you who trust Jesus. God chooses to effectively conceive new life in people. He calls them to himself, usually, guys, through people like you and me. So if I ask you the question, did you, did you have a spiritual dialogue with someone this week? If you never say, I have, then you're missing out, guys. If you never say, I've, I've sat down with someone, And I've pointed them to the cross. You're missing out on the role God has for you, the purpose he has for your life. We don't know who these people are that God has conceived new life in. Our role is just to give people directions, which should help us rest with confidence. We can be at rest knowing that having sat down with someone, having pointed them to the cross, we've fulfilled our role, we've obeyed the God we love. And we can be confident that should that person come to know Jesus, and we pray that they will, that it wasn't some fancy thing you said that brought them to Christ. It wasn't your 
great education or lofty wisdom. It was the fact that God was birthing new life in them. So you never have to worry about them. You don't have to ever be frantic if they drift or if you don't see them again. You can trust the power of God within them to see them through. I want to leave you with one final image to carry with you this week. One day, two monks were walking through the countryside. They were on their way to another village to help bring in the crops. And as they walked, they noticed this elderly woman sitting at the edge of the river. She was upset because she couldn't get across the river. There's, there was no bridge. And so they determined, you know, let's carry this woman across. So they offered, we'll kindly carry you across if you like. And she obliged, said, thank you. So the two men joined hands. They lifted her between them and they carried her across the river. And when they got to the other side, they sat her down and she went on her way. After they walked another mile or so, the second monk began to complain. Man, maybe we, you know, we should have really walked into town with her. Maybe we should have gone into town with her or at least provided her with an extra set of, of clothes or, or something just in case she gets into trouble. And the first monk just nodded and smiled. A few miles up the road, the second monk griped again. He said, I feel like I could have done more to help. We should have maybe, maybe we should have taken her back to the abbot, give her some food. The first monk looked at his friend, who was out of breath, couldn't go any further. He was paralyzed by regret. The friend was able to get out. Haven't you wondered why I'm complaining so much? Doesn't it bother you? He said, oh, yes, I understand. Your back hurts. He said, no, what do you mean my back hurts? Your back hurts because you are still carrying that woman. But I set her down five miles ago. Let's pray. God, please give us the courage to sit down with a friend, to use the birth line, to start a spiritual dialogue with a friend, a neighbor, or coworker. Give us the courage not only to live out a life of love and godliness, but to sit down with them, start that dialogue. And as the interest deepens, God, we will need to give directions to the cross. So please help us become more familiar with Jesus Christ crucified to go back to the cross every day of our life for forgiveness, for strength, for power. We can rest knowing that we've obediently and lovingly offered people direction and leave the rest up to you. We don't have to carry the burden with us forever. But we can be at rest knowing we've fulfilled our role and now it's up to you. And so we plead, we end this morning pleading that you would work in the lives of friends, neighbors, co-workers, family members, that you would even prepare the way this week for us to sit down with them, share with them the birth line, and be ready to point them to the cross. We ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen.